When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. regular season, what are you going to do? But we were just talking off the air, though, that, you know, they're going to uh, have another losing record. But, you know, they've been playing real solid baseball since July, and it's kind of been under the radar because people tune out after a terrible June. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on all my compadres, uh, uh, the usual suspects, of course, and we're going to start with Rich Sparago in Connecticut. Rich, how are you doing? Doing well, Sam, um, and I agree with what you said. You know, it, it's bittersweet at this time of year because the season has been up and down and times of incredible frustration, but it's always sad to see it end. At least it is for me, and um, and it is bittersweet. Well said. Why, well, thank you, and uh, appreciate that you're able to join us this lovely Sunday evening. And uh, also joining us is uh, the final part of our Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, and that's Mike. Mike LeColant from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. What's going on, man? Just another day in the neighborhood. I'm doing well, and uh, glad to see uh, another Mets win today. Another Mets win, another Mets win, a series win against the Nationals, which is always lovely. And it's always lovely when the Nationals are eliminated from postseason contention, and we had something to do with that, even if we also were eliminated. Uh, I am on location driving through Jersey, taking a little break from Lyft driving. Uh, that is what I do for a living currently. And uh, so we, we got Mike on the motherboard tonight, Mike. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, do we have our featured guest, Mr. Uh, Greg Prince of Faith and Fair and Flushing? Yes, we do. Drum roll, please. Take it away, Sam. Drum, drum roll, please. Uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing, a happy recap, volume one. Uh, amazing again, the 2015. Uh, uh, the, the, I'm totally spacing on the full title, Greg. Without further ado, take it away. What is that full title of the book I am so blanked on right now? I'm going to say, because I don't remember anymore, <laughs> it's uh, how the 2015 New York Mets brought the magic back to Queens. Uh, I, I have right. to look at the cover, though, to tell you. So, hi. Well, Greg, Greg I, I hope you're doing well. Um, I hope that, uh, we, you know, we were just talking about how well the Mets have been playing. I hope that's been bringing you some joy of late. 
but, you know, the last time that I personally got to talk to you on one of these things, going uh, pretty deep into uh, Mickey Calloway and the uh, the poor job that he had done. So now that they've been playing better since that 5-21 and 21 July, uh, what do you have to say about the rookie manager? Uh, he has come through the season. Uh, congratulations to Mickey Calloway for – surviving the gauntlet of managing National League Baseball, managing in New York, one more homestand to go. And, uh, you know, he hung in there. I will uh, certainly acknowledge that. I don't know that the Mets' improvement in the second half is on account of great managing by Callaway, but there's certainly no reason to find dark clouds amid silver linings uh, where he is concerned. So, you know, he is, I, I thought he was on his way to uh, being a one-year wonder, if, if that long, but he will obviously be back for season two and uh, has certainly earned, uh, you know, he, he has earned the benefit of the doubt based on uh, on how his team has performed in the second half. Yeah, you know, I kind of have to ask people about it as opposed to formulate my own opinion right now because I haven't really been able to watch it like, uh, a, you know, I, I, a typical fan year for me because it's been such a, an uneven, weird, uh, yet very, very special year uh, in, in many ways But uh, for me. But – you know, Greg, today, they won again. What are some of the things that you, you liked about that? But also, what are some of the things that you're looking for from this team coming into this last week, other than other than the obvious uh, regarding David Wright? But is there anything in particular that you could find in the last week of a season that will give you much more encouragement going into 2019? Uh, you know, at this point, I don't think there's really much to be divided. I think we've gotten past the the point of the season where you say, there's nothing left to play for, so let's play the kids or let's see what so-and-so can do. I mean, that's already been kind of taken care of. Uh, if I could ask Mickey Callaway to, to do anything, it would be to stop bunting. Uh, quite so much. I, I don't know why he suddenly decided that that's the key to success. I think we've seen that a little too often, but uh, that aside, I, I like the fact that he has sort of landed on at least the top of the order, uh, landed on a lineup that works, and he hasn't messed around with it too much or too often. Uh, the Rosario-McNeil combination followed by Conforto ha- has been a winner, certainly in the short term, which is, you know, all, all you can ask in terms of uh, evidence because there is no long term anymore. So, you know, let, letting those guys uh, find themselves, all of them along with Brandon Nimmo, you know, well, proving themselves at, at various degrees to be, you know, big league stalwarts, certainly in the 2018 context and you know, in the case of Conforto and Rosario and Nimmo, uh, a leg up, or, you know, you can certainly pencil them in for 2019. I think McNeil has earned every possible advantage in terms of second base for next year. I mean, you know, I, I think any Mets fan who, who goes back 
know uh, my uh, my colleagues uh, Rich and Mike do to the seventies who remember the name Mike Vale and uh, how he tur- turned us on with a dynamite August and September only to break a foot in the off season playing basketball and never really recovering his mojo and never being the kind of hitter he was. So I'm, I always have that, uh, not, not, not just Mike Vale as a cautionary tale, but I always kind of have this uh, echo of the, the phrase Bobby Ojeda liked to use a lot about scholarships. Uh, he would sometimes be talking about the pitching staff, sometimes be talking about everyday players, but the idea was there are no scholarships for young players. They have to earn it. So, you know, I would love to say, hey, Jeff McNeil, you know, let's, let's let's start the campaign to get him elected to the All-Star team next year and that sort of thing. And, you know, let me see if I can order up my McNeil 68 jersey. But uh, I, I would like to show a little restraint, but I'm happy that Callaway, who is who you asked about, by the way, I'm happy that Callaway has given him the opportunity to succeed and that Callaway, excuse me, um, McNeil, seems like the kind of player who is not taking anything for granted, who is going to continue to work hard and, you know, improve. And, you know, what, what I've liked about Callaway as sort of an extension of him is his coaches, and they talked about during the telecast today how much Gary DiSarcina has worked with the infielder, specifically Rosario, who has become a much better shortstop over time. I, I think we've seen it with McNeil, who came up with a, the reputation as being a hitter but not a fielder, and he's certainly proven himself, you know, competent, uh, occasionally spectacular, and not overmatched. So, you know, I, oh, overall, I'd say that this manager has gotten us to a point where we can believe in half an everyday lineup, which is, you know, not bad, considering where this team has been. And, you know, I... I I hark back to about 35 years ago at this time, a, a year that finished with the, the Mets far out of contention in 1983. But I remember looking around at the team at the end of that season and thinking, you know, we got Mookie Wilson center field, we got Hubie Brooks at third base, Keith Hernandez at first base, Daryl Strawberry right field, and a couple of very promising pitchers that we, we kind of know something about. I don't know how good we can be, but how bad are we going to be? And um, and I mean that in the how bad how bad could we be? I don't mean oh my god how bad are we going to be? And I, I get something of a vibe off of, of this group when you include the the three main starters and you know possibly a fourth and uh, maybe a couple of the guys in the bullpen and then you, you're sort of you know asking questions about the rest of the positions and couple of guys who were signed to longer-term contracts maybe than we want. But I I think you ask, you know, what do you want out of the last season, the last week of the season? You know, I, I want to feel good going into the offseason. I want to feel good about next year, you know, understanding that there are a lot of questions to be answered. But this feels like a better launching point than where we were in the middle of the season, than where we were even a season ago, and where we've been in many seasons. So, Overall, I just want to make sure nobody gets hurt and, uh, you know, get get us a, a general manager and uh, start uh, for the first time in a long time uh, with conviction, to use one of Mickey Calloway's phrases, uh, you know, ca- counting down the days uh, to pitchers and catchers in Port St. Lucie. Ain't that the truth? Not only just counting the days, but uh, don't get injured. That's always that's always. 
the phrase in the back of Mets' minds and really in, in the back of most uh, sports fans' minds when it comes to their favorite players. Um, Rich, I will totally be down with it if, if it is the truth, but do you think we're going to be running with this number 68 and Jeff McNeil? Only if he becomes a pulling guard instead of a trap blocking guard, you know, then then he'll stay with sixty eight. But no, he he has said that he he has said that he will um he will change his number next year. So thank goodness for that because you know, having weird numbers and first of all it doesn't really bother anybody. What what who cares? But you know, you had Turk Wendell with the double zero and you had, you know, some guys with strange numbers over the years, but let's Wait get rid of sixty eight, Jeff. I'm sorry, I have to the the Met the Met fan in me has to repl- just has to cut it off. Isn't it ninety nine? Was yeah. he nine? I'm sorry. Was he? He was ninety nine. I apologize. See, it was such a that shows you how much I focus on numbers. I didn't even remember. I knew it was an odd number, <laughs> but it was ninety nine and not double zero. So, but anyway, no, he he will um, he will move to a more reasonable number next year. He says. Um, and, you know, I just want to take a moment and, and basically, you know, remember when you would write term papers years and years ago, or maybe they still do it now, and you would, you know, quote the same source and you would say, Ibid. Um, I'm going to say that to what Greg said. I agree with everything he said because there's reason to be optimistic about this team. You know, if you look at the numbers, and if I may share a couple, since the All Star break, the Mets are now 34 and 28. So that's a two-month period of time, a little over two months. That's not a small sample size. And there's six games over 500. Now, does that mean that they're a lock to win the division next year? Of course it doesn't. But does it mean that it's, it's time for despair? It definitely does not mean that either. And the second thing I'll add here is when you look at, okay, how did they get to 34 and 28 in the second half? They used a solid business model. They got very good starting pitching. Yes, the bullpen is a bit iffy. They got good starting pitching. Nelson Figueroa in the postgame tonight was saying that they've morphed their offense from hoping guys hit, and I quote, 30 home runs and 85 RBIs to guys who get on base a little bit, steal a little bit, a little more small ball, Rosario, McNeil. That's a very traditional one-two. That's like, you know, it's like going back to the days, of, you know, yes, this is exaggerated, a bit like going back to the days of Dykstra and Backman. Somebody who can get on, steal a base, somebody who's a great bat handler behind him. So, you know, the reason that they've done this, it's not one thing. I think Mickey has settled into the job, settled into the National League, so that's helped. Having less reliance on the home run, having a little more small ball, that's helped. It's The starting pitching is healthy. They were all pitching together in the rotation. That certainly has helped. So, the model came together. It wasn't one thing like a cesspitus where you say, oh, my God, if something happens to that one thing, we're going to go back into the depths of hell. This is just things are coming together. They have work to do in the off season. The Braves are still going to be young and hungry, and, and they scare me, and the Phillies do as well because they apparently have nothing but money to spend. But, but it's, you know, it's not a time to be morbid in Metsville, and, and let's enjoy that. I guess I'll get off my soapbox now. No, I mean, you make uh, a lot of good points. And, 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 Mike, with what Rich just said, is that just a straight-up indictment on Sandy Alderson? Ooh, wow. What a loaded question. Uh, what a loaded question. 
and 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 just no, to put it out there, not, not necessarily be, because this know. is the team that he assembled. Uh, this is baseball, after all, and it's a game of averages. Let me see if I can bring this all home. You know, with regards to Mickey Callaway, very quickly, losing your three, four, and five hitter over the summer will make any man, any manager look bad. You know what I mean? And with regards to what Rich was saying, uh, as far as records-wise and, and their good play of late, uh, today today's game is 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 very indicative of what's been going on lately. You look at the top of the lineup, Rosario, McNeil, and Conforto, they went, I, I believe, 8 for 16 this game. Uh, so, and, and that's pretty much what's been going on. Jeff McNeil is batting 370 this month, and of course he still has to prove himself. Uh, but at the same time, this isn't your, just, this isn't your run-of-the-mill September call-ups. In September, the Mets have played the Dodgers. They've played two series against the Phillies, and they've played Boston. So they've played very meaningful games. I, I, I guess the, the other the, their opponents have been engaged in very meaningful games. But, you know, the Mets have been right there, and they've been up for the task. So if you take away, going back to losing you 3, 4, and 5, here, if you take away June, if you take away May, May they were 10 and 18. June, of course, they were a disastrous 5 and 21. If you take away June, from their seasoned record, uh, help me out. I, I think uh, they're sixty-seven and sixty-two, which is five games over five hundred, including today's game. So no, I, I mean it isn't all doom and gloom. There's very good things happening, and as Rich said, uh, it, you know it, it's according to a plan. It, it, it's just not random occurrences here. It, at least there's a, a thought moving forward. And, and on that note, I hope Omar and I continues. Uh, to have sway in our minor league scouting and development department. And as Greg says, we need an executive in place. Uh, but otherwise, I, I think I touched it, you know, or just wrapped up the first round of discussion, I hope. You know, hits, hits, hits. McNeil, Rosario, Conforto. That's what's been going on lately. And think, of, think about this as well, that Conforto had no spring training. Uh, and he's gone on to have a very good second half, or I should say since the All-Star break. So, you know, everything's positive, and we haven't even touched upon the pitching yet. Well, I, I, before we wrap up the Sandy Alderson part, uh, Greg, I, you know, obviously I wish him nothing but the best of health, and that were, was the circumstances on which he left. Um, and like uh, Mike just said, he did assemble this team uh, in many ways, but it's the way that team is executed is a completely different story on paper. And Rich has said it's a good business model. There's a plan in place. You know, we've, we've been, in, I, I, and not to take anything away from the Wilpons and, and the negativity that they've brought, but we've been trying to be a little bit more positive over the last few weeks about them. Uh, and maybe in this particular instance, they actually do have a plan in place that involves adapting with the personnel at hand uh, away from the type of, of stated uh, ways that, that Sandy Alderson likes to, to operate a ball, a ball team. Perhaps, you know, per, perhaps there was bound to be a transition period after Alderson. Uh, you have to remember that, you know, they did have to move Astrubal Cabrera to get to Jeff McNeil, and there was really nothing they could do until they traded him, and there was no likely 
opportunity to trade them. I don't know who called who and how many teams they they spoke to about a Struble. But, you know, they had a veteran second baseman in place who was having a good season. But, you know, the way that this team has been constructed the last couple of years, you know, that that is sort of a, a clue maybe as to what, you know, kept them back for about a year and a half at least in terms of all these kind of stopgap measures. So if you remember 2017 was about we, we have to get rid of veterans whose contracts are running out. We don't want to get stuck with them and, and get no return for them before we can even think about playing whoever. And, you know, we saw with, say, Neil Walker last year of – we saw with Duda and Granderson, who weren't exactly stopgaps, but you know, we saw it. We've seen the commitment to kind of, oh my God, we we have to get an older player in here because we don't have anybody coming up, or we don't really trust anybody who's coming up to play most of these games. Which is why, you know, when we're not talking about, you know, sort of the breaths of fresh air, uh, who are not just Rosario and Conforto and Nimmo, who we knew about. But McNeil, who I won't speak for anybody else except myself, I didn't know anything about him until earlier this season when he was tearing up Binghamton. Uh, you know, the, the other half of the equation is kind of being stuck with Jay Bruce and stuck with Todd Frazier, who on their best days are, are great guys to have in a lineup uh, if, if there's somebody, you know, that they're protecting and everything is clicking. But on their not-so-great days, are guys who, who you just feel are kind of clogging up the overall organization. And I think that may be, at least in terms of the last couple of years, might have been Alderton's legacy is uh, you know sticking us with a lot of guys like this who have their upsides, to be sure, but just this general distrust of playing you know, younger players. And you know, I, I understand the impulse, and I, I like, I like a seasoned player as much as anybody, but I'm, I'm beginning to kind of see the light uh, that you don't always have to go in that direction. You don't necessarily have to. It's funny to, I think, uh, use this phrase with a mention concern, but you don't have to necessarily overpay or at least overcommit to guys like Jay Bruce and Todd Frazier maybe going forward uh, in, in a market that wasn't all that great last year uh, for for players. Uh, it feels like we're kind of stuck with these guys for another year. And I, I think, you know, Bruce has swung the bat pretty well lately. Frazier has certainly had his moments. But uh, it, it's hard to get excited about that side of the lineup as well as, you know, obviously the Boyden center field and, uh, you know, the, the ongoing black hole that is the catching position. So, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I don't need to, to – have the long view on Alderson necessarily. He obviously did a lot of very important things to get this franchise back on its feet and find itself in the World Series, which I don't know if any of us envisioned when he took over. But, uh, you know, I, I think we're at a, a transition point and beginning to kind of see if I can throw out another cliche, you know, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And, uh, again, a lot depends on who is taking the reins from here. And if, if there is a coherent philosophy, what that philosophy is and how closely this followed. Because, you know, as a Mets fan for 
you know, not talking about, I'm, I'm not saying for, for near for, for my 50th season, but I wanted to uh, re- reference 1980, the year Frank Hashem came in, and there was talk then, like, we're, we're going to have a Mets way of doing things the way we had with the Orioles. And every now and then you hear something like that. You kind of heard it with Alderson. Like, you know, the, the, we're going to get everybody on the same page in the system. We're going to teach players the right way to do things. And it never really happens. I mean, you get some players come up and know what they're doing, and others who don't. And, you know, what I said before about DiSarcino working with Rosario, which is great. Dude, this is doing things at the major league level that you wouldn't necessarily think you would have to fix, that you'd like to believe that a guy who was one of the top prospects in baseball would have been pre-de-porter, as they say, ready to wear, ready to go. And, um, you know, I'd like to see the next general manager, the next president of baseball operations, however the titles shake out, you know, take take that sort of thing seriously. Get get a Mets way going. Make Make sure it's a good way. And uh, you know, have more players who know what they're doing when they come up. But uh, you know, I, like you, I, I join uh, all decent Mets fans and people, uh, you know, wishing Sandy Alderson nothing but the best. And uh, I appreciate everything he, he did. And hopefully, you know, the, the best of what he did is, is there to be built upon. Here, here, uh, Rich. Since- I kind of bounced off of uh, some things that, that you said, uh, if you want to take it home with this. Well, you, you know, the Sandy Alderson years were definitely the right thing for the organization at the time. You know, the organization was coming off of a nice run in the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, seven and eight. Yes, it didn't get to where we wanted it to get to, but they were certainly very good ball clubs to be con- you know, contended with, if I may make an unintentional pun. And then, you know, 9, 10, and 11 were not good. Um, you could see that it was time to start breaking things up, right and Reyes, all of that, who was going to stay, who was going to go. Um, and then, you know, you had to, to rebuild the franchise. It, it was time, and, and Alderson did that. And like Greg said, in four years, he had them in the World Series, and, and you cannot detract from that. He did it in a, in a certain way. He did it, you know, and, and I'm going to go off on a tangent for one minute because, you know, I read his book, and I never understood really what was so maverick about his approach. He, to me, he used an old-fashioned American League approach from the 60s and early 70s, Earl Weaver's three-run home run and great pitching. That's what he tried to do. He wanted a bunch of sluggers in the lineup, and he wanted great pitching. And there's nothing wrong with that. That worked. The Orioles were a dominant team in the American League in, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. They were winning pennants left and right, so there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, he, to me, he kind of dusted off an old approach and put a spin on it. And his spin was... He'll get there by doing it with that. He'll use that exact approach, but get there by finding what he calls undervalued players and not spending a lot of money to do it. So it was a twist on it, but, but the approach itself had been around forever. And, and it did work for the Mets. It did. It got them to the World Series. But now, okay, that model, you know, has seen its better days. So now you're seeing the transition, as Greg said, the transition – to a different type of baseball with guys like Rosario and guys like McNeil and Conforto, who's not a traditional home run hitter. You're starting to see those guys emerge, you know, and and let them take the mantle and let them be the centerpieces for what we hope will be the next resurgence of the Mets. You know, it's been two crappy years in a row, 
and okay, you know, some rebuilds are three, four, five, six years, whatever they may be. Let's hope ours was two. And it was a two-year blip on the radar, and, and they're ready to reemerge with a morphed business model, and that's what I'm hoping for. And uh, yet again, here, here. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering. You know, you you guys mentioned the bullpen. To get into some specifics, and um, uh, Rich, we were talking about today's game off the air, and you were mentioning how they it looked like they didn't really want to use Lugo or Gazelman because that's really been the formula lately. And so when going forward, I mean, I think there's a lot of things being assessed about these pitchers. Um, and I think, that, I think that even though it struggled, there is something there. And what Schwarzak's going to be uh, part of that, you know, who knows because of the injury, but he is signed uh, through next year, and hopefully he can, he can be of value. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, there, there's, there's a lot of good things to, to, uh, to be uh, excited about when it comes to the bullpen and the potential for it. And it, uh, it goes back to Lugo and Gazelman, who I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, I don't think will ever not be grouped together in Mets history. I'm not sure if that was for me, but I'll, I'll jump on that because, you know. No, I, no, I, yeah, it was, it was Rich. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so you're right, Sam. I mean, they are grouped together because you have two guys who used to be starters, and now they've settled into being pretty damn good at their jobs in the bullpen. And, you know, Lugo I, he sort of alludes to the fact he'd like to be in the rotation. I think Kesselman sort of digs the role of being the closer. But these guys, these are two very valuable arms who are very good at what they do. So if the Mets went into 2019 with Lugo and Gaselma at the back end of the bullpen, I'm, I'm fine. You know, they, they still have to do some work. You know, I, I believe they should bring – I'm okay with Blevins and Zamora if you want to have those guys or two lefties. Then they have to build around that. So today, if you look at it, and they have been very clear that they're trying to manage innings for uh, Gaselman and, and Lugo, which I would too at this point. The, the likes of Gagno, Seawald, Zamora, Drew Smith, Blevins, and Swarzak pitched from the third inning on. They pitched six innings. So, you know, they're trying to cobble it together, get a look at guys like Drew Smith. Bachelor, I think he pitched Friday night or perhaps Thursday, he pitched recently. So they're trying to get a look at these guys, manage the innings for Gaselman and Lugo, who, you're right, they're always mentioned together because they're a nice package. They could be your eighth and ninth inning guys. And, um, and I completely support what they're doing. You know, use them when it's the eighth and ninth inning of a one or two run game, and but give them at least three or four days at this point. Maybe we'll see those guys once or twice more for the rest of the year, and that's okay. You know, get a look at these other guys and start to assess what you have, and, and more importantly, what you need. You mentioned Paul Seawald and Mike. I mean, more and more, uh, you know, he, he got off to a, a good start when he first came up. Uh, he had a nice year. I, forget, I think it was 2016. Uh, but he, he, more and more, he seems to be going the way of Josh Schmoker. <laughs> hey, you know what? Relief pitchers are, are, are a rare and, you know, weird breed, man. So it's not for everyone. I really don't know what to say about that. But Paul Seawall, at least he has youth and, on his side. So let's let let's see. At this point, you know, he's gonna have to prove himself in spring training. Not now. 
but I'm with Rich. Uh, in fact, I say shut this Elvin down, shut Lugo down. They already shut Zach Wheeler down. Uh, they've already gotten all the innings they should have gotten out of Kisselman. As a matter of fact, they went into the season. We touched on this maybe a podcast or two ago that they came into the season uh, with the intentions of limiting their innings pitched. Well, you know, that went out the window. Kisselman wound up leading in innings pitched with fewer appearances than most of the relievers in baseball. Uh, and, and Lugo, he went by whatever limits they had in mind as well. So shut them down. I don't need to see them for the rest of the year. Uh, maybe, as Rich says, once, maybe twice. But uh, they've already squeezed as much as you know I desire out of them. They they're they're no longer a question mark as far as I'm concerned. So let's get some other guys into the mix. You know, Greg, we've entered the last week of the season. Um, there's a few things to touch upon. You know, we're talking about shutting people down. Uh, and so before we get to, I think, the featured part of this week, of course, Jacob DeGrom. Um, he's standing, I believe, at like a 178 ERA. Somebody correct me at some point if I'm uh, incorrect. But do you protect that or do you go the way of Ted Williams here? Uh, well, actually, 177. Let's give Jacob uh, every decimal point of his due. Um, you know, you have one start left. They've been pretty clear on that. Uh, to bring him back on three days rest the final Sunday, unless there is some magic formula that says, you know, he can't possibly win the Cy Young without going 11 and 10, theoretically, and this is a silver 11 and 9. Let's hope Knock wood, he gets to his 10th win on Wednesday. But, you know, this is you know, infinitesimal stuff, just like the difference between 177 and 178. Um, you know, I, I think if, if we're making wins and losses, you know, the deciding factor, then we should, you know, shake Jacob DeGrom's hand now and tell him, you know, congratulations on finishing third or fifth or whatever, because nobody's certainly in Met circles, believes that's the determining factor. Um, you know, I, I don't think this is a, a Ted Williams 1941 situation, which I, I assume what you're alluding to, the idea that he has to go out there and uh, you know win the bat 400 uh, as opposed to rounding up uh, decimals or anything like that. Jake has his one more start. Uh, I'd love to see him pitch on the final day personally because I'll be there on the final day and the more Jacob DeGrom the better. But there's no for a guy who's never pitched on three days rest and with anything short of a playoff spot on the line or, you know, advancing in a playoff series, what, why you would suddenly put a guy who's thrown more than 200 innings through that just to kind of gussy up the numbers, you know, ever so slightly more. Uh, I don't know why you would do that. So, you know, give him his, his one final start. Um, you know, we will all cross our fingers. It doesn't rain or, have uh, wacky uh, delays or anything like that. You'll, you'll recall the reason we're, we're sort of at this spot in terms of how much DeGrom there is left is because of that day uh, at City Field a couple of Sundays ago where they thought it was going to rain all day, so they didn't want him warming up and sitting down, so they pushed him back. And then it turned out that it rained the next night instead, and there was no delay on that Sunday. So, you know, it's you, you can outsmart yourself with this stuff. So, 
Uh, let, let us hope uh, there is clear weather this Wednesday night and all week. Uh, let us hope that Jacob DeGrom pitches as we know he is capable of one more time, uh, pitches as many innings as he can and is comfortable doing, and his arm feels great. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think there will be anything left to prove. In fact, I, I think the only thing that really could have turned the tide would have been had Max Scherzer won last, I guess it was last Friday night, against the Mets, gotten to 18 wins, and if he had a chance to get to 20 next Sunday and pass 300 strikeouts, you, know, you might have had shall we say, a rear guard action among voters saying, you know, I know that Jacob DeGrom has had a terrific year, but, geez, look at what uh, Scherzer has done. And I think it would have taken a, you know, a phenomenal, otherworldly triple crown on all counts to kind of put DeGrom into the shadows. And I don't think that's happening. I think, you know, basically DeGrom can go out and be a pitch like a human for six innings next week, uh, and it would be okay. I, I would root for him to, to, as usual, pitch like DeGrom rather than just a human because he has been superhuman on the mound this year. So uh, it is funny, though, when you say, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to the uh, the feature attraction that uh, this whole season Jacob DeGrom has been the feature attraction of the New York Mets, yet it is apropos <laughs> that, uh, you know, he, he is a little bit of a, a secondary storyline uh, prior to the final homestand. That is true. Um, Rich, it seems as if there's some deciding factors that are actually pushing Jacob DeGrom over the edge for all voters. And and I know that there was a uh, poll amongst the BBWAA, and it seems overwhelmingly everybody, this isn't going to be a debate, generally speaking. Um, And it seems like it's the records he's breaking with the, not only the quality starts, but just three runs, three earned runs or less that he broke of Dwight Gooden's from 1985, uh, as well as just the glaring ERA that is just so superior to everybody else's. And they know he has been playing on a pretty mediocre, if not downright awful at certain times, Mets team, uh, who did not provide him with any run support. So, you know, it, it seems as if the our fears, the, the fear that, uh, there would be maybe a New York bias or a win uh, win loss bias. It seems to be going by the wayside. Yeah, it, it does. And, and to tell you the truth, you know we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast. And you know, and I, I've said pretty clearly that, in my opinion, I, I thought that he that Jacob would not win the Cy Young. And as recently as two to three weeks ago, I felt that way because. You know, yes, we've evolved, so to speak, in our in our mentality as as sports fans, and we look at things more objectively, and and we don't hold things dear that we used to hold. You know, like batting average was always the number one thing, right? And well, now we realize that you know on base percentage matters, and um, and for pitching, it was always well wins and losses because the job of the pitcher is to win the game. But now we've evolved to think that. You know, the pitcher can't really make the team win. The pitcher can only give the team a chance to win. And run prevention is really all the pitcher can control. So, but my thought, my question was, how much have we evolved? Have we evolved all the way to a point where a pitcher who, you know, who carries a record, one, who potentially could be one game over 500, 
if he should win this week, you know, if he's 10 and 9 at the end of the year, have we evolved enough that that 10 and 9 record will not be obscured by Max Scherzer's, you know, 17 or 18 wins and and Nola's 17 or 18 wins? Because, you know, 5 years ago, definitely not 10 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. You know, here you have a guy, people would have said, this guy's 10 and 9. How can he win a Cy Young award? These guys here are, you know, 18 and 9 and and 17 and 10. How can this guy at 10-9 and nine win a Cy Young? Yes, I know Felix Hernandez, but that was an outlier. But really, that, that poll this week is what tipped me over the edge. It said to myself, wow, the evolution in thinking and the way we look at the, these things really is far more significant than I thought it was. Because for him to come out as a hands-down winner in that poll tells me that people will not see his potentially, I'm hoping, 10-9 and nine record. They'll see run prevention at a 1.77 ERA. They'll see the fact that he has 259 strikeouts in 209 innings, which is second only to Scherzer. They'll see that. They'll see his whip of .94, which is right there with Scherzer and, um, and, and Nola. So they'll see, though, that if you truly look at run prevention as a job of the pitcher – Jacob has allowed a half a run per game less than his nearest competition. End, period, full stop. The guy wins a side. We all wanted that to be the case. I didn't think that the thinking had evolved to that point, but apparently it has, and that's great. Win the Cy Young, Jake. I'm going to be very happy for him. So will I. Uh, just because I love when the Nats get trolled, and I love doing it to myself. Um, I, I don't have the tweet in front of me, but I saw a really funny tweet the other day, guys, uh, that said the the Nats are going to put a uh, run differential banner up next year. Um, I, I really I really don't like that team. Uh, I uh, and and that's something that's interesting. And and, and Mike, I think that says it uh, kind of what Max Scherzer. You know, Max Scherzer is having this type of year, and he's he's spectacular. I think he's a little home run uh, prone. Uh, but that, you know, that kind of says it all about the Nats, that, that it's, it's, it's really weird that they have such a crazy run differential but are so generally mediocre. And, and it kind of – and that, that's almost what I think. I know that Max Scherzer can have nasty stuff, but I've just had this feeling that he's just – ever since I have been watching him more often, since that first start that I was at, in 2015 against the Mets. I just, I think this guy's overrated. Sam, your eyes do not deceive you. Uh, There's something to be said for Jacob deGrom's sustainability. And quite simply, Max Scherzer is fading fast. Over his last six starts, he has allowed 20 earned runs over his last 39 innings pitched. That's a 4.61 ERA. Again, that's his last six starts. As you say, Jacob DeGrom broke Dwight Gooden's club record for consecutive starts with 20, uh, excuse me, with three earned runs or below. And he's presently setting the major league record, originally set in 1910. So he's, again, one more appearance of the same quality, he would extend the major league record to 29. But again, my point is sustainability. He's been constant. His ERA has not been above two since May 
second. And I can't reiterate enough. Max Scherzer is fading fast. And I'll throw the number out there one more time. He's allowed 20 earned runs in his last 39 innings pitch. That's a 4.61 ERA. And meanwhile, Jacob DeGrom continues to do what he's been doing since May 2nd, which is keep his ERA below two. And he's in the process of setting a major league record that was set back in 1910. There's something to be said for that. And I hope the voters take that into consideration. I I couldn't even imagine somebody not getting the Cy Young Award when you've mentioned everything you just did about her. And I think I'll, I'll leave it I'll leave it at that with it. I, I, I don't, we've said so much over the last few weeks before there was a little bit more glimmer of hope regarding it um, that I will segue to the the featured uh, part of this week, and that is uh, David Wright and. Greg, you know, we're talking about Mets history. We're talking about MLB history right now when it comes to Jacob DeGrom. He's been so consistent. Um, if it weren't for injuries, talk about consistency when it comes to David Wright. Well, uh, you know, that is you know, the great unknowable. All we can do is you know, look back on David Wright before injuries. David Wright kind of putting up with injuries, and then, unfortunately, David Wright sidelined by injuries. Um, you know, there was a, and I'm certainly not the first person to make this case, you know, a, a, a Hall of Fame-type career in the offing as David Wright went along. And I, I sort of pictured a, a day sometime in the next decade, maybe the decade after that, uh, should live so long. Uh, David Wright's name was going to be on Hall of Fame ballots, and there'd be just this endless debate, people telling you that, oh, you know, look at this metric or that, he really is a Hall of Famer, or, oh, you know, you can't, you can't ignore the fact that he was short in this or that, and he's not a Hall of Famer, and he's in the Hall of Very Good. And I, you know, kind of rolled my eyes at the idea of this being applied, uh, you know, a very familiar argument being applied to a player I cared about, and I probably would have said, I don't care if he's in the Hall of Fame or not. He's he's David Wright. He's my Hall of Famer. He's our Hall of Famer. He's, uh, you know, if, if everything had worked out, we'd be calling him, you know, the greatest Met ever not named Tom Seaver, uh, which we might do anyway, because, you know, we've been, you know, I, I imagine we've gone through subjects like this before, but we don't have a great building, you know, a figurative uh, Hall of Fame well, we have them. There is a Mets Hall of Fame, obviously. But, uh, you know, we, we don't build monuments to position players on this team. Uh, you know, we've, we've retired one number, uh, that, that of uh, Mike Piazza, who I you know, earned it by being spectacular and impactful in a relatively short period of time. Um, the case I've always wanted to make is for number 17 to be retired, for Keith Hernandez who may not have been quite as spectacular as Piazza, but the impact was, was outsized on, on building that team, and the production for a few years was pretty much unmatched 
you know, really until Piazza came along. And, you know, Daryl Strawberry, who had one of those what-if careers, but really before we had to say what-if, you know, he was for a few years, and I don't even necessarily think we fully appreciate it while it was going on, you know, a, a monster. <laughs> the great, uh, you know, power hitters, not only in net history, but, you know, of his time in the major leagues. But we never had anybody like David Wright who had elements of all of that and kept doing it and was doing it every day. I, I was thinking about, uh, you know, going to Met games from 2004 on. Uh, I, I went to David Wright's second major league game. And I was thinking, what, when was the first time that I went to a Mets game and David Wright wasn't in the lineup? And I, I haven't gone back and looked yet. I plan to. But I, I'm thinking it must have been, you know, I mean, from the time he started, obviously. Um, it must have been that week after they clinched the division in 2006 and Willie Randolph was resting regulars for a few days. Maybe he got a day off there. I remember specifically, it's a Mets classic that gets shown all the time in the offseason, particularly that, that game where they were down 5 nothing to the Cubs in 2007. And uh, I think Ruben Gotai got the big hit. I remember specifically that Wright, Reyes, and Beltran were all given the day off by Randolph. Uh, but Wright came off the bench, delivered uh, a big hit in the ninth inning. But, you know, the, the point being, of, yes, these were isolated incidents, uh, but it really wasn't until he got hit in the head by Matt Cain that I, you, know, you went to a ball game at by then City Field and said, oh, you know, David Wright's not going to be in the lineup tonight. He's out for a few days. And it was kind of odd. I, I remember sitting out in left field in 2011 when he went on the disabled list for the first extended period uh, after he did something to his back that we, we didn't realize at the time when he was trying to tag third base when Carlos Lee was coming in, which was sort of the beginning of all these problems. I remember sitting in left field looking at number two playing third base. It was Justin Turner and thinking, why does that look so strange to me? Is it that number two is just kind of an odd number for a starting ball player? Or is it I'm just so used to seeing number five out there? And, you know, eventually that year, David came back and wasn't quite what you wanted him to be. He was never quite what you wanted him to be at City Field versus Shea Stadium. But, you know, eventually he got his spot back. He was playing every day. Uh, you know, had had a couple of uh, absences, you know, because of hamstring problems, things like that, over the next couple of years. But you got, you know, you were used to seeing David Wright. You didn't have to think about seeing David Wright. And and by then, you know, he was a Met for ten years, and you know, you were could project out certainly the, all the records he he was going to hold as a Met if he hadn't already held them. And then suddenly, you're in a spot in 2015 where you come to the ballpark and David Wright's not in the lineup and you don't expect to see him in the lineup. And it becomes a novelty for a little while at the end of 2015 and you're, you're grateful to have it. You're grateful that he can enjoy that team being a part of it and, you know, play a role, play a, you know, a, a, an honest to goodness important part, not just the ceremonial part in getting that team to the World Series and winning a World Series game for that matter. And just as you're kind of settling into the idea that, okay, you know, maybe he won't play every day, but we're going to have David Wright around, you know, he's going to be on the team, Terry Collins is going to rest him, but he'll he start on opening day and he's hitting some home runs and things are going to be good. 
then he disappears completely because of, you know, spinal stenosis. And then you revert to, well, you know, we have to find ourselves a third baseman, and it no longer seems quite so strange to see somebody who is in number five playing third base. And, you know, you, you got to a moment uh, in, the, in the past off season where they said, okay, we've got to go out and find a third baseman. And, then, you know, not a stopgap, not a guy coming off the bench, not a guy coming up from AAA, but, you know, we, we have to go out and find, in this case, Todd Frazier, you know, a, a real live, uh, you know, professional third baseman who is, you know, not going to sit on a bench. And it, you know, finally kind of sunk in that this is over, that, the, you know, the David Wright era, uh, certainly in terms of, you know, depending on him and looking to him as a, a core part of the club, you know, let alone the captaincy and let alone all the, you know, records he was setting and was due to set, uh, that was all going to be over with. So, you know, you, you get to, to this point and you're reminded once he, you know, sat at that podium a couple of weeks ago and announced, you know, the, the plan for the rest of the season to play, you know, one more game as a third baseman and then you know, potentially pinch hit a game or two. You, know, you, you just remember that this was the way it was supposed to be all along. Uh, you know, especially when they signed him to, I guess it was an eight-year extension, uh, you know, coming out of the 2012 season, and the idea that you know, for the first time, we were going to end a career like this with the player in the Mets uniform. That there, you know, wasn't going to be a deadline deal, and we're going to have to just you know, get rid of his contract, or there isn't going to be some kind of weird bitterness, and there isn't going to be this this hope of no, well, maybe we can get him to come back. Um, he was going to be here, and it was going to be consistent with everything we knew about the David Wright personality and career because that was who he was. He was consistent, or you, know, you, you could overlook the consistency to a certain extent because he was so good. He wasn't just, you know, you say consistent, I tend to think of a guy who, you know, just, just throw numbers out there. Well, he hits 280 every year, and, you know, maybe hits 12 to 15 home runs, and he has, you know, 70 or 80 RBIs. He was consistent at a level far above that that we weren't used to, you know, except from the Hernandezes and the Piazzas and the Strawberries and a couple of other guys along the way. And he did it every year until, you know, he physically couldn't do it anymore. So, uh, you know, it, it kind of brought back that, yes, this was as good a player as we've ever had. And he did it every day. And he did it, you know, at all aspects of the game. And he did it as the kind of person who – Nobody ever said a bad word about. Maybe you could question, you know, gee, why didn't he bring Daniel Murphy home from third base with nobody out that time when we needed a run? That sort of thing. You could question individual at bats. You could you could question a play in the field, but everything about the human being, everything about the way he interacted with his teammates, with his his managers with the media, with fans, most importantly, you know, with just every, you know, person who he came into contact with. I, I was lucky enough on a couple of occasions to have that sort of interaction with him as a member of the media, or at least masquerading as a member of the media a couple of times. And he just still you know, couldn't have been more decent talking to somebody who, you know, total stranger who wasn't really you know, going to do anything for him that, that was going to advance his career after some guy asking a couple of questions to write an article on a blog. But, uh, you know, he, he treated you like, like a professional, 
treated everybody that way. Treat, you know, treated everybody as a decent human being, and you know, you just shouldn't have to take that as, as unusual. And maybe it's not as unusual as I'm kind of making it out to be. But you know, based on the reactions to him, based on the you know just the universal bowing for his good character, I have to think that it is quite uncommon, at least in baseball, that you get a guy like this, and you, and you love to believe that it was something he spread. Uh, among those he played with and that the young players who came up, who all say some version of this, uh, you know, that, that he helped them become better, not just at their at their jobs, but, uh, you know, that better as, you know, young adults becoming, you know, older adults, uh, if, if that's the correct phrase. So I, I seem to be babbling at this point, but I'm just so happy that he's, even if it's for a week, that he's part of our lives again. And it's not, we're, we're not just kind of like waiting for some puff of white smoke to come out of Port St. Lucie or Las Vegas and tell us that, uh, you know, David Wright took a few ground balls today and, you know, he's not in too much pain today. And, you know, he's, he's going to try it again next week because he needs to rest up. You know, it's sad that this is it, but, you know, sooner or later it was going to end. So at the very least we have resolution and beyond what it means to us as fans, I hope, that, you know, it means as much as it can to him, that it is as satisfying as it could possibly be. God, God knows he's the one who's lived with this uh, for the last few years, and he's the one who has to, you know, live with his back. And um, you can't ask more out of a guy. So, uh, obviously, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure and it's been a privilege, uh, you know, get, getting to be a fan of this guy. So, uh, I, I can't wait to see number five uh, be out there one more time. You know, I, I got to meet him at the Ike Davis event back in 2012, and he couldn't have been more gracious. He wasn't there all that long, uh, but but he just wasn't, you know, didn't bark at any uh, photo. And, and, Greg, you know, it's something that I actually talked to a passenger about who told me yesterday, oh, you're so sweet. You know, and I even said to her, I'm like, I'm only sweet because people make you graded on a curve. And and it's almost like being decent, you should you need to be applauded for being decent. And there is something to be said though, because it 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 can be you don't always get it from everybody, that when somebody represents the franchise the way David Wright did represent the franchise with not only decency but going out of his way, understanding that that kid is going to remember that he's talking to in the stands is going to remember that conversation for the rest of his life and remember that smile that David Wright gave to him. That's, that's, that's basically how I feel about Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg was cooler to me on the set of Eddie, uh, which my dad was in to this random 10 year old whose father was on a day gig on this movie. She couldn't have been, she went out of her way to be just just make sure I felt special. And and I will always hold her in the highest regard because of what the way she treated this random 10-year-old. And that is what David Wright does. Um, I'm going to go to you with this one, Mike, uh, because, you know, we, we want to look at as much on the bright side as possible, but I do think the Hall of Fame numbers would have been there. But... It makes me think, though, how affected was David Wright by Sinfield, do you think? 
Re- repeat the very last part of that. You broke up for a second. Um, no, I said how how affected by City Field do you think David Wright was? Terribly affected. They took away his his, his primary strength. Terribly affected. Uh, no foresight whatsoever on the part, on on behalf of the organization. Uh, that whole niche is completely contrived. Uh, oh man, don't get me started. Yeah, but he was affected by that. But he he eventually adjusted. <laughs> Uh, perhaps not to his satisfaction, and perhaps perhaps not to some fan's satisfaction. But by then, you know, his body started working against him. So uh, I'm I'm a I, I'm just in no mood to go off on a tangent on on. That was on that's my fault. Field. That's my fault, Mike. I no, 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 no. I mean, I I, I'm, I, I so want to. But I got to control myself. Uh, but yeah, it definitely affected him. Uh, you know, the guy he he eased right into Shea Stadium, uh, found his groove, and, and you know the production and, and the numbers he posted speak for themselves. With health entering his prime, I think that the, the man you know was a legitimate triple crown threat. I really believe that. Uh, but again, his body started working against him. Uh, I, I just hope when he does play, something special happens. I really do, down deep in my heart. Uh, just, I don't know, a game-winning hit. doesn't have to be by him, just by somebody. Or some something other than that being his last game, something else that we could take along with it. You know, uh, a special moment, uh, a Mets history moment. Uh, one of those that we'll watch on, <laughs> you know, SNY for years to come, uh, just because it was such a special game in addition to what it meant to David Wright and us as, as fans. So I, I don't know what I'm looking for other than to say just that, that I, I just hope something special happens and that he has that moment and the fans have that moment to connect, and I hope it's something uh, that happens organically. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to see anybody put in a position of uh, of, uh, of of blowing this, <laughs> you know. So whatever whatever transpires <laughs> that day, <laughs> whatever transpires that day, I hope it happens organically. I hope it's special. Uh, I, you know, and, and I hope it, it's just going to be one of those days that we'll remember as Met fans, you know, forever. And, and again, I hope this isn't put in, in in one singular person's hands, and it comes out contrived and, and things of that nature, and, and left up to someone again, you know, to blow it. Uh, God, I, I pray. I'm crossing my fingers that doesn't happen. Nine uh, Eleven was so special uh, because. I, I do believe everything that transpired that day was organic. Uh, there have been other moments where we, we didn't necessarily get that same feeling. So I think you guys know exactly what I'm saying. And I'll just end it at that. No, absolutely. And and knowing David Wright, though, and this is a good segue, and I'll go to you, Rich, uh, with this next. And I, I will start it off with uh, – my personal favorite David Wright moments that I can think of 
Um, I, I, I have to say, personally, in, in person, it's got to be when they won against the Phillies and Pavelbon in 2012, when he drove in. I, I think he drove in Giordani Valdespin with a blooper in front of Hunter Kent. That was one of the best moments that I've ever had in the ballpark. That was a great game that we came from behind. It was an excellent ninth inning, and David Wright capped it off. Um, that, that, and then I just remember being on the road when Howie Rose erupted when David Wright came back and hit that giant home run against the Phillies. That was the first of eight to break a record that night in 2015. Those are my two David Wright moments that I personally cherish the most. Because I think early on in my Mets history, uh, specifically once like 2009 came and I was really starting to to dive into my Mets fandom, um, I kind of hated on David Wright for a little bit. And at some point, it dawned on me that I was watching something special. And I'm glad that I, I – you know, I was I I I put the I put it aside being one of those Met fans hating on the captain and and Rick, I'll go to you with that. What are some of your favorite David Wright moments? Well, I have two in mind, Sam, and and the first one occurred in the middle of May in 2006. It's the walk off against Mariano Rivera, and why that meant so much to me was. In 2005, the Mets clearly had turned the corner. You know, they weren't quite ready yet, but they clearly turned the corner. And 2006, we were all, okay, this team's going to dominate. And so here come the big, big bad Yankees into Shea Stadium. It was the first game of the series. I believe it was like around May 18th, 19th, somewhere in there. You know, so you're sort of at that quarter point of the season. Mets had looked good, but now here come the Yankees. And so the Yankees had built a big lead. Mets chipped away, took the lead. Yankees tied it, going extra innings. And and there's, of course, it's wanting to establish the Mets as a dominant team in 2006, but, of course, it's beating the Yankees and beating Rivera on top of that. So when he hit that ball and it went over Damon's head, if you think about it, that, to me, that play happened in slow motion. Damon's going back and back and back, and I kept thinking that SOB is going to catch it. He's going to catch it. And it got over his head. I believe it was LaDuca who scored. And it was like, oh, man, you know, of, of all people to stick it to Rivera and the Yankees, it was David Wright. How great is this? He's our guy, and he stuck it to their guy. It was wonderful. So that's my first one. And the second one goes to 2015 in the World Series, Game 3. Um, as a father, very important to me. I was sitting there with my daughter in the World Series, which is like, you know, for, for all of us, being with your kid at a World Series game is like top of the mountain. So we're sitting there, and Mets are down two games to none, as we know, and Royals had scored in the top of the first. And it's like, okay, um, you know, I don't want to go down three games to none here. Come on, guys. And so what happens? David Wright steps to the plate as if to say, everybody chill, we've got this. And he hits a two-run home run put the Mets ahead. Now, they later relinquished the lead and came back and won that game three, which only win they had in the series. But, again, it was David Wright saying, I've got you guys. Don't worry about this. I'm here. We're going to be okay. And he slugged it out of there. It was an absolute bomb. It was a no-doubter. And you just felt good. I mean, you felt like, okay, the guy who's supposed to step up stepped up. And although that series didn't work out the way we wanted it to, it was a great feeling in the moment. 
And I believe it was a big part of what propelled them to win that game three of the World Series. I think they won it seven to three. They won it, you know, fairly comfortably. So anyway, those are my two. Actually, it was nine to three, making it even more ridiculous that Familia was in. But I digress. Uh, Greg. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, you know, uh, re- regarding what when Mike was saying about something uh, you know, not contrived happening, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be all that sorry, and I know it's not going to happen, if um, Don Mattingly uh, went to whoever his pitcher is going to be and told him the story of Denny McLean already having won 30 games in 1968, the Tigers having already clinched the American League pennant, saying, hey, kid, you know, who's pitching on Saturday, whoever it's going to be. Uh, you know, this Denny McClain, he was a great pitcher in his day, and the last time that the Mickey Mantle came into Tiger Stadium uh, with, with, with nothing else on the line, he made sure to kind of uh, to serve him up a pitch that he could hit out for a home run. Uh uh, no, there's nobody who has that kind of juice on the Marlins to get away with that sort of thing. And I know that uh, it would be frowned upon and David Wright would, would would never take part in such a thing. But, God, wouldn't you love to see something like that happen? Because at, at the time, Mickey Mantle was tied with Jimmy Fox for uh, what was then third place on the uh, all-time home run list. And uh, he was going to retire. And McLean, who, like, like I said, had everything – had done everything he could possibly do for that season, so it wouldn't have been great if Mantle could go out on top. And uh, you know, at the time, Mickey Mantle was on his last legs, and he uh, served him up a letter-high fastball, served him up three of them because he wanted to make sure he understood what he was doing, and Mantle swung, and the ball went out, and everybody was happy, and here I am 50 years almost to the day talking about it. But uh, that's just a fantasy I have. I don't think Don Mattingly is uh, going to – his last place Marlins is going to be that concerned uh, with David Wright having that kind of a uh, farewell. That that being said, in terms of things that have actually happened, um, cer- certainly uh, the stuff Rich was talking about uh, r- r- ranks high in my memory too. Uh, there's one moment that kind of stays with me from, from young David Wright. Uh, his, his first full season, 2005, the Mets were kind of Know, on the periphery of the wild card race. In fact, they they were reaching their their high points for the year, uh, eight games above 500 that night in San Francisco. Uh, the actual big story was that Steve Traxel, who had been on the disabled list all year, was making his first start. So you know you had some reinforcements for this unlikely wild card quest. And Traxel pitched really well. I think he went eight innings, or at least since the eighth inning, and the Mets won one nothing. And where David Wright factors into that is he hit the only he drove in the only run of the night with a uh, solo home run in the second inning off I believe Edwin Correa, but what struck me that night having watched Wright do that and having watched him at that point for a little more than a year from July of '04 and this was late August of '05 was you know all my life as a Mets fan I was watching players come up to other teams from the minor leagues be very celebrated as, you know, game changers. Guys like Dave Parker or Mike Schmidt or Dale Murphy, later on Albert Pujols, Miguel Cabrera before, you know, he, he went to the American League. And, you know, you would just sit there and watch guys like this, you know, rake against Met pitchers in big moments and be the difference. And I remember thinking 
at the time, you know what? We finally have a guy like that. It's taken, uh, you know, at, at that point, uh, more than 40 years of Mets baseball. But, you know, we have that guy who, you know, comes fully formed practically to the big leagues, and we're not talking about, you know, maybe someday he'll be okay if he just, you know, works the kinks out. No, this is the kind of guy who the fans of other teams are like, oh, no, David Wright is coming to the plate. You know, we've we got to get David Wright out here. Oh, David Wright killed us again. And that's what it felt like those first few years, and, you know, I just wasn't used to that. Out of a, uh, a Met everyday player who had come up and was doing it almost from the beginning, you know, the thing I loved about David Wright early on was, you know, he really had a clue as to what he was doing at the plate uh, as a rookie and as a sophomore, uh, you know, would work counts. Even if he, you know, would be struck out, it was usually, you know, on nine pitches. You'd face somebody like John Smoltz. Smoltz might have gotten the best of him, but you, you found yourself thinking, all right, you know, Wright is going to compartmentalize this. He's going to learn from it. And the next time he faces Smoltz or, you know, somebody else in, in this kind of position – you know, he's not going to strike out on three and two. He's going to find a way to get that base hit. Uh, certainly from the, you know, the, the latter stages of David's career, uh, you know, Rich mentioned the, um, or, or maybe uh, you, you did, Sam, I'm sorry, the, the home run when he first came off uh, the disabled list in 2015. I'll, I'll never forget it beyond the fact that, um, you know, it was a home run for David Wright in his first game in several months because this was when my father was in the hospital, uh, you know, re- recovering from, you know, whatever relapse he was, he was going through at the time when he was ill. And we had just taken to watching Met games together during that summer. And he was getting interested again in baseball for the first time in a very long time. But he was also, unfortunately, a patient, and he had things he needed to do and he had a, you know, a, a bodily function that he needed to take care of. And I had to tend to him and had to uh, kind of, you know, show, you know, just take, take care of some, some stuff. And uh, I had to leave the room for a moment as day before David Wright came up for his first at bat. And I walked back into the room, and I looked at the graphic on, on the screen, and the score had changed. And I'm seeing David Wright, you know, being congratulated in the dugout. I'm seeing the Mets fans in Philadelphia being giddy. And I'm just like, I just missed David Wright. David Wright hit a home run coming up on the table list right now, didn't he? Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that second where you're not paying attention or you've just missed something and you kind of have to do the math and realize the score has changed. And, you know, you, you, you just missed you know, one of the great dramatic moments you could possibly ask for as a Mets fan, but then you remember, you know, that's okay because they have a thing called replay, and they certainly showed it 17 more times in the next five minutes, and they've shown it many times since then. But the, this idea that, uh, you know, there there was hope to this guy and obviously hope, hope for our team, and, uh, you know, just the, the excitement that he showed being in that pennant race. Um, there are two pictures what wind up this portion with, with, the, with these two pictures, if I can describe them. I think we, we all know the one from that September where he's doing the fist pump in Nationals Park on Labor Day as they're coming back against the Nationals in what would turn out to be this incredibly dramatic three-game sweep that basically ended the National season and, for all intents and purposes, sent the Mets to the, their first postseason in nine years. And when you know, that freeze frame came up when that became a wire 
Service photo that was widely disseminated and still gets widely disseminated in, in light of him being in the news. I remember a game in 2008. It was a day game at, at, at Shea against the Phillies. It was, at the time, a kind of all the marbles game. Uh, they were tied for first place in late July, uh, kind of a, a rare thing where the, the two top two teams were tied at that late in the season playing each other, and whoever would win would, would take the lead in, in the division. You know, granted, with still like two months to go, unfortunately. But um, I think Delgado got the big hit. Wright was on base. Wright and Robinson Cancel. And there was a picture of David Wright having scored either the tying run or the go-ahead run in, you know, either right before, right after Cancel. And they're both celebrating. But you focus on Wright, and, you know, he, he tended to get Cancel tended to get cropped out of the picture. And if you're familiar with the Captain Morgan logo and those commercials from, from about 10 years ago where everybody's got a little captain in them or do you have a little captain in you and you would see you know the, the guy like with his sort of bending a knee uh, in the air that's what David Wright looked like and I remember you know, printing that picture on Faith and Fear and with a little um, you know, headline that said you know got a little captain in him because you know we all knew he was going to be the captain someday so, you know, when you when you have, and, you know, obviously he's, he's pumping his fist at that time because he's excited. We happen to see his leg in the air. And to me, it was like, okay, seven years apart, two different pennant races, David Wright, totally different parts of his career. But he was excited then, as he's excited now. And for all, the, you know, the, the accolades that we pour upon him and all the accolades that, you know, his profession has yielded him, all he really wants to do is – you know what? This wasn't even a matter of him getting a big hit. This wasn't a matter of him scoring one because somebody else got a big hit. All he wants to do is help his team win. And you know, no, nothing could make him happier. And it was great to be reminded of that in 2015. And I, I get a real kick th- thinking about it, you know, 10 years later, uh, you know, who, who, what he was like. And, you know, that, that to me are, are just kind of bookends of his career. Yeah, I feel – it's like an old adage. All he wants to do is play baseball, and David Wright is certainly that. And I think we have a few uh, players that we can revel in right now who just all just give him a chance. All they want to do is play some baseball. Uh, Mike, round us out with the uh, David Wright, and I would say round us out with the uh, the the uh, 2018 portion of our podcast before we take a little bit of a, of a historic trip past the uh, David Wright years, even. Uh, David Wright, uh, Rich had brought up two, the hit versus Mariano uh, Rivera sticks out, and uh, as well as his home, his, his, excuse me, his home run in 2015 in the World Series. But I'm going to go back to 2006. Two instances: his opening day home run against the Nationals in the sixth inning, 3-2 victory, and then the day after they clinched the NL the NL East, the headlines uh, of the local papers, Newsday, the Post, Daily News. All feature him and Jose Reyes together. Uh, toasts of the town. Mm. If you're living in the moment, you know, you thought that was a portent of things to come if you're living in the moment. But uh, the day after the clinching, uh, the headlines are something that stick out. And, and again, when you couple that with his opening day home run, uh, 2006, it goes down uh, as something. So I'll always associate with David Wright. Never for a second did I feel he was ever, ever overshadowed by the likes of Carlos Delgado or, or Carlos Beltran or that very veteran club. 
Uh, he 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 stood out. Uh, he you know on his on his own two feet uh, and, and did great things. Again, it's only unfortunate that his body failed him. So uh, I, I wish him well. And, and again, I, I hope that uh, when he does take the field uh, uh, once or twice, you know, as a pinch hitter, and, and then when he finally starts the game, I think I, I just hope that it all goes down very. Uh, you know, I, I just hope it's special. That's all. Yeah. I well, you I was going to say that. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Captain America, World Baseball Classic. You know, another one of those Mets uh, local hero things. World Baseball Classic, I forget whether it was the uh, 2006 or 2009, but uh, he had a game-winning hit, and, and again, the headline the next day was Captain America. I actually have to give credit to Matt Vasturgeon being the one who, who uh, coined it. I believe it was a grand slam against Italy, and Greg, I feel like you may have the mind for this one. Uh, you know, I don't want to give Matt Vasgersian credit for anything because I think he's the worst announcer I've ever heard doing baseball. <laughs> but uh, that that was an apt phrase. It was, again, it's going to sound self-serving, but it was a phrase that had been kind of rolling right in my head heading into that WBC. And, uh, yeah, hey, I failed to write it down anywhere. So uh, so so be it. So if Vasgersian was the uh, guy who put it out into the atmosphere, then we know that Matt Vasgersian has been good for something. So I, uh, I thank him for that. I think it was 2013, actually, because that was yeah. uh, the year that he <clears throat> was being named captain of the Mets, so it all kind of came together. Uh, you know, even, even before that, of course, you know, who, who better embodied, uh, you know, the, not to get carried away here, but who better embodied the, the best of America and uh, that, that sort of ethos than David Wright anyway. So, uh to get a, a big hit for his country in a, a tournament, uh, you know, but what, what what could be more appropriate? If I if I could just uh, throw on one one more, I guess it's his it's not his last hit because he played for another week or so in 2016. But if you remember, uh, there was a game against the Brewers on a Saturday afternoon in May of 2016, where the bases were loaded in the ninth inning and. You know, all he had to do was take ball four for the Mets to win a game, and he he swung away, got the winning hit. Uh, you know, you you would recognize the pictures of an incredibly boyish looking Johannes uh, Cespedes, uh, you know, going over to hug him as well as you know the rest of his team, you know, dousing him with uh, with, with, with that's how he rose would say dousing him with liquids and sunflower seeds and so forth. I just remember the quote afterwards. David Wright, I go, it's been, in David Wright's world, this, this was his way of being a scamp because he said, uh, you know, what about, uh, you know, not, not taking a pitch you should have been taking on? And he said, well, you know, better ask, better to ask for forgiveness later than permission before. Uh, so I think that kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of summed up who David Wright was. You know, he was not somebody to flout the rules, but uh, – he could, uh, he could he could go about things his own way if he uh, if he thought uh, he had the pitch, which he obviously didn't. They they won that game, and you know they, you know unfortunately he would be sidelined uh, by uh, the time the Mets would clinch the uh, the wild card in late September of 2016. But you know knowing how close that race was, you know every everything he did early in the season ended up uh, being a part of winning that uh, postseason berth too. 
I will be there on Tuesday with our friend Michelle Iwanu, uh, formerly of Rising Apple. Uh, it's, it's looking more and more like I'm going to go the way of Michelle and not be there on Saturday night. That is unfortunate, but uh, I was cracking the numbers, and I just got to keep on driving, unfortunately. But I will certainly be paying attention to that time, and it, it's going to be – it's going to be bittersweet for sure, and I, I'm, I have a feeling that uh, we're all going to be choking up a little bit, especially, you know, you're, 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 Mike, you're talking about Jose Reyes and, and David Wright, and, I, you know, it's most likely we're going to be getting that, uh, that lineup on, on Saturday night, and I'm very interested to see the way, like you said, all these special moments that could possibly naturally occur. Maybe we'll see something naturally occur uh, having to do with Jose and David again. So, oh, you know, you got to hold, hold, hold on to emotions until this weekend. Uh, I, I, and, but but uh, a side note, and we'll segue right after this. Man, we were talking about all this, and I just was thinking, when I said to myself in my head before I got back on, um, I'm going Tuesday, and, I'm, and David Wright or not, I'm going to have a ball game in front of me. And I really hope I see David Wright pinch hit. And it's just these little moments of the ballpark that I've been missing, and specifically the Mets ballpark. I never took in in Colorado to going there on a whim if the Mets were not playing, which, you know, I think that I would have had circumstances been different, but to the ballpark, you guys, and and just take a, take a Mets game in one more time, at least one more time this season. And uh, we're going to segue, and, and, and I think this is actually a good segue uh, to number 21. You guys mentioned, uh, Greg, you mentioned Carlos Delgado. We're not going to talk about the, uh, the Mets players right away, but Carlos Delgado is going to be one of the featured on number 21 for sure, although I have a feeling as to who everybody will think is the number 21 in Mets history. But before we do, we're going to – Go all the way back to 1921. We got a little legacy to talk about uh, when it comes to the Dodgers. I'm sorry, the Robins. The Robins, the Giants, and a little bit of the Yankees because, well, they were they were involved a little bit with the uh, uh, New York National League that year in the World Series. But Mike, I'm going to go to you first, and we're going to start with the Giants. We're talking the World Series champions here. 94-59 finished first in the National League. Uh, won the World Series, and I love saying this because it's kind of ridiculous, but they won the World Series over the New York Yankees 5-3 to three in the old nine-gamer. Uh, the Yankees, just to group them into, into that, uh, who obviously gave the Giants a run through money in an all-polo grounds World Series, 98-55 and 55 finishing first in the American League. Uh, also first in attendance for the American League with their uh, their polo grounds. And real quick, before we uh, we mention, before we, we talk about that World Series, 1921 Brooklyn Robins finished fifth, 77-75. Wilbert Robinson, he's the reason why they're called the Robins. Uh, they were third in attendance, which is nice for them. 613, 245, 613,245. Um, but, but, Mike, and we can start with Brooklyn and then go to the World Series, actually. Uh, this, this is what they started settling into that was basically the Daffiness Boys era. Yeah, well, you know, this is a particularly disappointing season considering they won the pennant the year prior. 
Uh, Zach Weed is their remaining star. Uh, he leaves the team with 14 home runs and 85 RBIs. That's 320, which is good, and which is typical for him. I meant to say, uh, he's a Hall of Famer. Why not? And, and Burley Grimes was their top pitcher, 22 and 13, 283 ERA. Uh, you know, but they're completely overshadowed by what's going on in Upper Manhattan and in the Bronx. Uh, the Brooklyn Robins really are are a non-issue this season. Baseball, the uh, epicenter of baseball, is taking place. I would say what seventeen miles north. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, this is still during the. I believe Christy Matthewson's still on this team, correct? Uh, no, by this time he's he's done. Uh, he's a retired man, uh, also suffering effects still from the war. But he's retired at this point. Right, uh, yeah, but yeah. He, unfortunately, unfortunately, after that, I, I, I forget exactly what the, the uh, final days of his death were, of his life were, excuse me. But um, And, Greg, actually, I'm going to segue to you because this is your grandfather team. Uh, I guess mine is the Dodgers and yours is the Giants. Uh, Christy Matthewson, unfortunately, had a quick demise after after uh, his retirement uh, because of sickness. Um, but this was really John McGraw's last hurrah over these these few years before the uh, the Yankees got Yankee Stadium. Yeah, this was uh, you know this was probably how John McGraw thought it was supposed to be and how it would ever be uh, henceforth. Uh, you know, winning. The World Series over uh, these upstarts, uh, his uh, his tenants, and uh, you know, not 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 to uh, give give away uh, the next episode, but uh, you know, do, doing it again in 22, and um, you know, it probably made all the sense in the world to uh, to old guard uh, New York baseball fans that the Giants, who uh, you know, didn't have this extravagance right fielder home run hitting uh, import from Boston the way the Yankees did, and we're still doing it kind of the old way, uh, you know, the, the hitting and the running, shall we say, and the pitching. Uh, I don't know. It was past Christy Matthewson's time, but Art Neff won 20 games, Fred Tony won 18, uh, Phil Douglas 15 wins, Jesse Barnes 15 wins, and uh, you know that that was enough to to win that World Series. Uh, the the first, you know, it wasn't even a nickel World Series as, as those would come to be known, because you didn't have to. Well, you know, you, you needed to take a subway to, uh, I suppose, if, if that was your mode of transportation to get to the polo grounds. But there there was not. It was not a subway series in the sense that you would go between ballparks. There was one ballpark, and it belonged to the Giants, much as uh, as, as that autumn did. So yeah, you know, I mean, uh, John McGraw would pitch, pitch. John McGraw, excuse me, I think of another McGraw. John McGraw would manage for you know another decade, but uh, you know, after 1921 and 22, would never see another World Championship. After 1924, would never see another World Series. So uh, these were the last of the glory days. You know, he had a uh, a great team. High Pockets Kelly, Frankie Frisch, uh, George Burns, a uh, you know, and of course a uh, a young feller named Casey Stengel. Well, actually, he was over thirty, so he was uh, 
considered pretty <laughs> old, and you probably you probably won't be hearing from old Casey Stengel for much longer after 1921. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, you know that that was uh, you know what one of the probably the you know you can't say it was the last great moment in giant history by a long shot in New York because there were, there would be more pennants down the line and. You know, a couple of, at least, well, one more world championship, uh, two more world championships, actually, you know, off in the future. But um, I think this was the team, and this was the era that, for the old Giants fans, Sam, who you and I have gotten to know over the years, maybe for their fathers, this was sort of like what kind of hung in the background as... Why isn't it like this anymore for the guys who, who we've met who, who went back to, say, the days of Mel Ott or Carl Hubble, uh, who never didn't see a world championship in the 30s and didn't see a, a World Series in the 40s and had to wait until we were already adults in the 50s when you know, the, those teams had their moments. Uh, you know, they had to look back the way I suppose some Mets fans probably look back and say, uh, gosh, it's too bad I was born too late for 1986. Uh, I'm sure there were Giant fans growing up in the 30s and the 40s saying, God, I wish I had been around 1921 to see uh, to see this team uh, beat those upstart Yankees and you know sh- show them who's boss in New York. And uh, you know it was the the end of a an extended golden era. You know, I when I was growing up, they talked about uh, you know the Dyna- Peter Goldenbach wrote a book called Dynasty. About the Yankees, forty-nine to sixty-four. Oh, you know, winning a pennant almost every year, and you know, in popular baseball literature, that is extended to to cover nineteen twenty-one to sixty-four. Uh, all those American League pennants almost every year for, for four decades. But if you were a baseball fan in, in the early nineteen twenties, and you said dynasty, you weren't talking about the Yankees. You were talking about the Giants, and this. You know, the, the roster had certainly turned over since the early part of the century because, you know, time goes on. But uh, this was a team that had been the flagship of baseball for about, uh, you know, a good 17, 18 seasons. Not every single year, but they were always kind of back at it, uh, you know, the way the Patriots are in football these days. Um I'm sure if they had the, if they had wild cards and divisions and things like that, there would have been lots of opportunities for John McGraw to win more than just a couple of World Series. But uh, you know that this was indeed the high point uh, in in many ways of Giants baseball, and uh, little could have they known that October that uh, it would never quite be as good again in Upper Manhattan. You know, it just gets me thinking, like you said, before the Yankees were the Yankees, if only the musical No, No, Non, Net didn't need to be made. And for <laughs> everybody listening who doesn't know what I'm talking about, uh, No, No, Non, Net is the musical that the producer of it, or, or whatever whatever he was, but he liked making musicals, and he also owned the Boston Red Sox. And, well, as they say, the rest is history. And Ruth made his mark as a Yankee in the house at Ruthville, which I guess, you know, if you, if you don't know too much about the history, it's a spoiler alert. So we should probably, uh, you know, keep it mum right now because uh, we got a few more episodes uh, till, uh, till we get there. 
but moving on, we got number 21 in Mets history to discuss. Guys, there's so many different players to start with, and I guess that we could start with, but but um, I am going to go with my era, and that is uh, Lucas Duda, Rod Barajas, Todd Frazier, Delgado, the last four to wear, number 21. Um, Carlos Delgado, I, I, I was disappointed that he couldn't, continue into into 09, uh, as we were with many of those players from 09 who went down. Uh, we were disappointed about it, but Carlos Delgado was such a fun Met, and, and knowing that he didn't want to go there in 2005 because he thought the Marlins had more chance to succeed that year to make the playoffs, I always just think, like, what if all this stuff had come together? He was such a cool Met that I wish he had had more years as a Met uh, and not what always happens a lot of times, which is we get these guys at the tail end of their careers, uh, which is, is, is representative of, of a few players on those 2006 teams. But uh, Rod Barajas, you know, he was such a he, – he always started off strong most of the years that he, he was uh, in the league, uh, and 2010 was no exception. Uh, he, he actually got us thinking for a second because he was a fun he was a fun player outside of the fact that he was upper upper cut happy. Um, he was still that year made us think this team could be good and for a hot second they were until as usual a one in ten post all star break run. Um, Lucas Duda. I always thought that Duda twenty one uh, looked a little unfulfilled, which is why I added the Judah to a jersey. And so I will always have a the Judah 21 jersey. Um, Lucas Judah, farm boy power. That's, that's what I remember uh, in 2014 when he basically solidified the first base position uh, for himself before, before Ike Davis got, got uh, traded. Uh, Lucas Judah hit a home run, and I, I, I was next to somebody in the stands that just kept, kept saying, got that farm board power. Yeah, man, farm board power. So I'll always remember that about Lucas Duda. And, uh, you know, Todd Frazier, we, we've talked a lot about him, and I'm, I'm happy. I don't think, uh, you know, I, 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 you always want a, a player to um, make, you know, not completely, like, bring, uh, you know, uh, uh, disgrace to the number. But I have to say Todd Frazier's a good number 21. I will give him that. And, guys, I'll pass it on to you, starting Mike, uh, first, with your number 21. Uh, I'll stick with Carlos Delgado for a second. I, I wish his hit had lasted a little longer. I think if, if he would have been able to hit number 500, his 500 home run uh, in a Met uniform, we'd be speaking very differently of him today. Uh, he'd be remembered very differently in Met history than he is today. Uh, but I thought he was a great Met. He had a great NLCS against the Cardinals. It's just unfortunate that we lost that. Uh, Ed Crample wore this number as an original Met in 62 through 64. And uh, I just want to throw honorable mention out there for Warren Spahn, uh, just an incredible left-hander, an uh, all-time baseball history great, you know. So I'll let you guys pick at the list. Uh, Rich, if you want to take it from there. Well, you know, as I look at the list, um, growing, having grown up when I did, you know, getting into baseball in the early 70s, that was still Cleon Jones wearing 21. 
And so your first impressions are lasting. So I still think of 21 as Cleon Jones, who was a very, very good ball player. Uh, it was always kind of neat to me that he threw left-handed and batted right-handed, which was, you know, very uncharacteristic. It still is uh, of many players. So Cleon Jones, because of primacy, to me stands out as a Met. Um, then I'll, I'll jump to Elliot Maddox, who, um, who was a good hitter with the Yankees, a very good ball player. Uh, you might remember when the Yankees played at Shea for a couple of seasons, Elliot Maddox stepped on a uh, on a drain thing and and absolutely tore his knee apart, and um, and that basically ended his Yankee career. The Mets started jumping into free agency a little bit in 1978, and they signed Elliot Maddox, and you were hopeful. And here was this guy who had played for the Yankees, who was a solid ball player, solid outfielder, good hitter. But he never was the same after that knee injury. Um, the Mets, of course, uh, something we've talked about many, many times, insisted uh, on playing Elliott Maddox out of position. He started playing a lot of third base, which he hadn't played in, in many, many years. He was an outfielder, and uh, the Mets played him at third base and, you know, didn't help many. So uh, I think about Elliott Maddox. Um, Kevin Elster, you know, we forget, at least I forget about him, but he was the shortstop on the 88 team. Um, he was a shortstop with some pop in the bat, and Elster was a Met from 87 through 91, so he had a few years of starting shortstop. And then I'll make a, a mention here of a guy, and Greg, check me on this if I, if I don't have these details right, Masato Yoshi. Um, and what I remember about Masato Yoshi is 1999, Mets have to play that one-game play-in in Cincinnati, and Al Leiter goes out there. Al Leiter was the guy. He goes out there, the Mets threw their ace, and he did what aces do. You know, he went all the way. I think it was like a four-hitter. Launching the Mets into the playoffs, great. And then you thought about it and you said, ooh, first game in Arizona, we're throwing Masato Yoshi out there. Ooh, no, I don't like that. But what does Yoshi do? He goes out there, he throws a damn good game, keeps the Mets in it, and the Mets, of course, uh, you know, win on a ninth-inning grand slam by Edgardo Alfonso. So, I think of Yoshi as that guy who was extremely nondescript. But in the first game of the 99 Division Series, I believe he matched Randy Johnson, right? And, and he matched him. And the Mets ended up winning the game. So here's, uh, here's that guy who, you know, was a journeyman kind of pitcher, but had a really big moment. So that, those are my thoughts on number 21. Well, I like that. Your uh, before I, I pass ahead, it to you, Greg, no, I was going to say that before I pass it to you, Greg, to take us on home, uh, I see Kevin uh, Kevin Stass's name, uh, name there. And all I could think about was Keith Hernandez going to Jesse Orozco and going, if you throw him one more fastball <laughs> uh, in, in, the, uh, in game six in the NLCS. Anyway, Greg, take us on home with number 21. Sure. Well, I just wanted to segue off of uh, Masato Yoshi. Not not only was he uh, facing uh, Randy Johnson in the NLDS, he matched up, I believe, twice against Greg Maddox in the NLCS. Uh, one of those games being the Grand Slam single game. Obviously, both Yoshi and Maddox were long out of the game uh, once that was decided. But he was, yeah, he's kind of, I guess, the, depending on, on who, rem- who remembers what, kind of a forgotten man on uh, that 99 team uh, that needed every little bit of 
energy that every single Met had, so he should not be forgotten. Um, to, to back all the way up to Warren Spahn, I just want to note, I was thinking, you know, when the, the Braves come in this week, we're going to see Lucas Duda, or hopefully we'll see him because he's on the Braves now, and if you, if you need a reason to root for the Braves in the postseason, I suppose that would be the only one, but uh, I was thinking, well, will Duda be wearing 21? Well, of course not, because Warren Spahn wore 21 for the Braves when they were in Boston and Milwaukee, and uh, no, he he was gone before Atlanta. I was going to say, it's Eddie Matthews, I'm thinking of, who uh, played for all three uh, cities. But uh, so, so there, there's your Lucas Duda, Warren Spawn 21 connection. To be honest, I don't know what number uh, Lucas Duda is wearing for the Braves, and uh, it's not that important. Uh, Leon Jones, as uh, Rich mentioned, um, is, uh, is Mr. 21 forever, as far as I'm concerned. I think as far as anybody who grew up during Cleon Jones's long tenure as starting left fielder for the Mets, uh, you know, the the one offensive star of the 1969 Mets, uh, to a certain degree, Tommy Agee, although Agee had his better season uh, in 70. Uh, you know, you sometimes you see a picture posted in various places, usually in the middle of summer, of the National League All-Star starting lineup at RFK Stadium in 1969. And uh, you see Hank Aaron, you see, I think, Billy Williams, you see Ron Santo, you see Johnny Bench. And if you're not a Mets fan in the starting lineup, you're probably like, who's that guy wearing New York, 21? And the way I like to describe that picture with all those Hall of Famers in it, Cleon Jones and Friends, because Cleon Jones was. Uh, starting left fielder, or uh, to be honest, I don't know which, which position he played in that All-Star game, but he was a starting outfielder the last year that uh, the All-Stars were selected, uh, starting lineups were selected by their peers, uh, not by the fans. So that that was Cleon Jones' mo- moment in the sun. Certainly we will all remember him as the guy who cost the last out of the 1969 World Series. And if you can remember, uh, to 10 years ago this week when Shea Stadium hosted its last baseball game and they had every player kind of circle the bases or at least come to touch home plate from either the first baseline or the third baseline, Cleon Jones gets to home plate and he replicates the motion that he struck to catch that ball going down on one knee. So, uh, you know, he's quite aware of, of, of his position in Mets history, and, you know, he will always be 21 to me. The other guy who, strangely enough, will always be 21 to me without thinking is Billy Baldwin, who, because he was the first guy I ever saw who wasn't Cleon Jones wear 21. Billy Baldwin was here and gone, uh, and unfortunately is no longer with us. So he's the outfielder we got when we traded uh, the, the, the more reviled trades in Mets history, uh, Rusty Staub for Mickey Lowlitz, the uh, the throw-ins, or at least the other players in it, Billy Baldwin coming over from Detroit, and Bill Laxton, a uh, guy who I thought was going to be great coming up from Tidewater. He went to Detroit, and late in the year, Billy Baldwin came up, uh, hit a couple of home runs, or at least hit one home run, I think. It was a walk-off home run against the Cubs, and uh, it was just strange to me. I, I, I didn't, wasn't under the impression they were they were going to retire number 21 for Cleon Jones, but it was just strange to me when, when, in that era when you had players who stayed year after year 
that you just somehow couldn't picture anybody else in those numbers. And I felt that way about 36 and about 3, about 15 and numbers like that. And certainly 21 was in that, that range. So whenever I think to myself, who wore 21? The first guy, Tom Jones, and the second guy, it's not Duda, it's not Delgado, it's not Elster, even though they were all more impactful players. And I certainly some others, it's almost always Billy Baldwin. Uh guy who I thought was going to have a great career in number 21 uh, came along in the mid-90s, Bill Pulsifer. Uh, not not too many pitchers, but uh, he he wore 21. Um, as, as I'm glancing at the list, I think he was the first uh, pitcher to wear 21 since Warren Spahn. And other candidates, unfortunately, that's all he had in common with Warren Spahn. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, everybody who was around in the 90s will fill in the, the blank on what happened to Bill Pulsifer, part of Generation K, and uh, high hopes and injuries, and unfortunately a homegrown starting rotation that never came to be. And, um, you know, the, the other, you mentioned Kevin Bass. Kevin Bass, it was like a ghost walking through the 1992 Mets when they got him. I, I guess you could... <laughs> could uh, liken it to Austin Jackson suddenly being here or last year, um, Nori Aoki. They needed a guy to play the outfield. I don't remember uh, all the injuries that went down that year necessarily, uh, although there, there were a slew of them. But, uh, you know, what, what the uh, tipping point was where they said, we've got to go get Kevin Bass, who I was actually surprised a few years later, to, to look it up, and re- I, I thought like Bass was on his last legs, and he retired. But no, he played many years for other teams. But uh, yeah, we remember him as you know the the instigator of the famous uh, "you throw anything but uh, sliders, so we're going to have a fight" uh, situation among uh, Hernandez, Carter, and Orozco. Uh, but I remember about Kevin Bass as a Met, other than that sense of you know it's how odd it was that he was here, and and how nobody commented how odd it was that he was this you know because that. In the summer of 1992, it was dawning on you as a Mets fan that the good times were over, that, you know, that team that we loved from 86 and that team that Kevin Elster helped win a division title, as mentioned, in 88, and this team that was supposed to continue being great that kind of fell through the floor, and then they brought in all these out-of-towners to kind of boost it back up, and that didn't work. And now it's just like, well, let's grope about and find somebody to play center field or left field or right field for a few weeks. And it's like, wow, Kevin Bass from the Astros. This is, again, a ghost from the 1986 NLCS. And I think at about the last possible moment of that season where you could have pictured the Mets being in contention. It was the middle of August. They were playing the Pirates, who were about to win their third division title in a row. And they played a 16-inning game at Shea Stadium. And I, I, think the, I think it came down to Kevin Bass as the last out. He certainly came up in the 16th inning. And I was thinking, doesn't anybody else see the beauty in this, that Kevin Bass from the 16th inning of the NLCS Game 6 in 1986, six years later, he's going to be here. He has a chance to get the hit to keep the Mets alive. And, of course, he, he made it out. And I think he went over 8 that night. I could be shortchanging him. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Nothing really came of Kevin Bass's uh, brief Met tenure, and he was on his way. And, um, yeah, Delgado, uh, like Mike said, uh, you know, certainly deserves, uh, you know, when, when we talk about the Wright and Reyes era that it was, you know, the guys synonymous with, with making that team go, 
besides those two guys were the two Carloses, uh, Delgado and Beltran. I think, you know, Delgado kind of, kind of falls by the wayside a little bit in the popular Met imagination just because his career ended rather suddenly. You know, I, I think 2009 might have turned out a little differently in terms of the perception of the ballpark, at least if he had stayed healthy past early May because he was the one guy who did not seem to have a problem hitting home runs at City Field over the first month or so. I remember him hitting, being the first guy to hit what was then known the Pepsi Porch. And, uh, you know, you were still in, you know, if you had Carlos Delgado in your lineup and he was hot, so you had a chance to you know, win a game. Um, I had mentioned before, uh, you know, David Wright uh, pumping his fist in 2008. I mean, Delgado, along with Johan Santana, it was the reason that team, you know, got us to game 162 and, and the Shea Goodbye ceremonies uh, that I referenced a moment ago. Because I, that guy, you know, again, he was kind of, off, off his game for about a year, again, nagging injuries and slow start. And then, like, shortly after Jerry Manuel took over, and I don't know if that had anything to do with it, took off. And for about two and a half months, you know, you could not convince me anybody else should have been the MVP in the National League because uh, he, he put the Mets on his shoulders. And eventually Beltran and Del, uh, Reyes and Wright and certainly Santana all you know, played pivotal roles in that team you know, taking it to the limits and giving the Phillies all they could want and ultimately, unfortunately, coming up one game shy. But uh, he was a monster in 08. He was a monster in 06. Uh, you know, huge part of, of, you know, what were unfortunately limited good times, but they were very good. Good good times never seem so good, as they say in another ballpark. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I will end with... Uh, Almost back in the present. No, no offense to Todd Frazier. I don't really have a whole lot to say about him. But uh, Lucas Duda, you know, huge part of that 2015 team. Um, huge part of, of, you know, really what, what became a kind of a slow build revival of the franchise. And, you know, his pinnacle, I suppose, was you know, the 2014 season getting to 30 home runs and I think it was 92 RBIs. Uh, God, I might be off on the RBIs, but I remember being there on the final day of uh, the 2014 season. And in that way, the fans who go to final games of the season are you know, hyper aware of the milestones that are at hand. And he hits his 30th home run, and you know, everybody erupts with the kind of joy that you can only feel if, if you want to have it because the Mets were in fourth place no matter what. And uh, we remember watching the dugout, and everybody had disappeared. So it's sort of like what, uh, more famously, what happened with Bartolo Colon when he hit his home run in San Diego. That that was the year, you may recall, of the car wash when, uh, you know, the guy would hit a home run and he'd run through the dugout. Everybody would kind of make like he was going through a car wash and wash him and dry him and that sort of thing. And everybody hit <laughs> because it was Lucas Duda. Lucas Duda, you know, was very careful not to have a personality and, um so, but what does Lucas do to do with his tiny little smile on his face? He runs through the dugout as if he's going through the car wash, and there's nobody there to, to wash him or wax him or dry him off, and it was very adorable. And then, uh, you know, everybody comes out and congratulates him. And then, uh, you know, huge part of the 2015 team, like I said, um, really when you want, want, want to boil it down to, to a certain moment, that, that series at City Field, but what we remember mostly for Wilmer Flores hitting that uh, – home run uh, to beat the Nationals on Friday night, and then Cespedes comes. Yeah. Lucas Duda is huge in that series. 
over the next two nights and, you know, just had bursts of power. He never really had another season like 14 where you felt like he was a, he was a weapon a la Delgado all the time. But in small bursts in 15 and 16, even 17, uh, until, again, his, his contract was just considered something you had to offload, um, could carry the team for a few days, for a week, maybe two. And then, you know, he'd kind of go into a slump or whatever. But uh, no, nobody said he was perfect, but I, I'd say yeah, farm boy strength is, is apt. Uh, he was a lot of fun to watch, and I always, I always loved the interaction between, you know, Lucas Duda was just, you know, tight-lipped, not unpleasant about it, and, and Curtis Granderson, who was, you know, the mayor of Flushing. And uh, that, that, that whole bit with, uh, was it an Instagram thing? Uh, we follow Lucas Duda and going around and uh, videotaping him being Lucas Duda. And it was just you know, one of those things that if you're a fan of the team, you get a big kick out of on a day-to-day basis. So um, the rest of the 21s, uh, you know, some, you know, they're, they're, the, the 21 seem to be, uh, the 21 club, if you will, either seem to be guys who you remember vividly or guys who you kind of have to dig to say something about. So, um talked enough. So uh, here's to Cleon and, and Lucas and, and Pulse and uh, a few guys in between. Warren Spawn, Ed Cranepool, thanks for wearing 21. And I'll round it out with this regarding Lucas Duda and that weekend that you mentioned against the Nats. Uh, he was the pivotal part of that game, too. It was 2 nothing early, and he had a solo home run to make it 2-1, to one, but then hit the game-winning hit, uh, which was a double over Jason Worth's head in the eighth inning. Uh, to win three to two, but the thing, but about the thing that I remember the most, other than that game, is that he turned on that pitch against Jordan Zimmerman. There was no earthly reason why anybody would would be able to hit that pitch, which was basically up and in on his neck. He turned on it so tightly, but like, and and and, and it was just because at that moment there was just this home run magic. First, Curtis Granderson. Next pitch, Daniel Murphy. Yoana Cespedes gets his, his first hit. And then Jordan Zimmerman in on the neck. It was just, it was, it, it was amazing. And, and, you know, as, as uneven as Lucas Duda could be, and streaky, which is such a cliche word in this day and age to use about players. We say it all the time. We throw it around. But when he got hot with the home run, he couldn't, turn on pitches like that Jordan Zimmerman pitch, and that was a thing of beauty. I sometimes, when in the off-seasons, when I'm, when I'm missing Mets baseball, I will watch that particular highlight because it still amazes me. So, Lucas Duda, here, here, and yes, Greg, here, here's to all of number 21. Thank you for wearing it. And, ladies and gentlemen, that is our 21st episode. Without further ado, I'm going to loop around to our guys the last word, and we'll start with you, Mike. Uh, three, if I may. Denton, True, Young, Jacob DeGrom. Let's go. Rich? The end. I'm using two words. The end because it's the end of the baseball season, which is a time for sadness for me, but also, obviously, it's the end of an era. We'll see David Wright hang up his cleats. We'll probably see Jose Reyes hang up his. You know, things come to an end in life, and uh, that's what this next week's going to be about. Greg? Uh, I, I brought his name up ever so briefly um, a few minutes ago. Uh, Wilmer Flores, out for the season, 
arthritis in both knees, future somewhat in question, maybe uh, you know a, a chronic condition, maybe not a you know baseball fatal, shall we say? But uh, tough break. Not not that there was anything to play for down the stretch here, but three consecutive years. It's kind of ironic to consider. Uh, breaks a wrist. Hammett Bone at the plate in Atlanta in September of 2016. Uh, breaks his nose on a foul ball at Minute Maid Park, September of 2017. Uh, ends his season in 2018. He can't get to the end of the season yet. This is the guy more responsible for, for ending games with one swing of the bat than anybody else in Mets history, certainly from a home run perspective. And I think with... Uh, throw in other, other sorts of walk-off hits, sack flies, and so forth. And, you know, clearly, uh, c- certainly in the uh, what, what more or less turned into the, the post-right, uh, even though David Wright was not retired, uh, post-right period, uh, arguably the most beloved net of the last four or so seasons. Uh, so all I can say is I really hope for the best for Wilmer Flores that he has a a good and healthy off-season and uh, rehabilitation process, whatever needs to be done. And I, I hope uh, he is one of those when we, we, we're talking about the end right now, when we get to the beginning, the next beginning, because that's always what we look forward to uh, once we, we uh, a week from now and then the season is behind us. I hope Omar Flores is, uh, is there wearing number four and uh, making us all smile again uh, and making himself smile again. Here, here, which has been my uh, two words of the night. And, Greg, as always, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And uh, uh, you know what? I haven't used the phrase in a while. Shameless plug. Have at it, Greg. Oh, uh, hey, Jason Um If you are in the mood for uh, a <laughs> tweet, to read about David Wright from the last uh, 14 seasons, uh, just enter right into our search bar. Uh, between me and Jason Fry, I think we've written about him a few times. And um, otherwise, the only plugging I uh, have to do is, uh, if you want, you want to read more than that, and uh, uh, enter Greg W. Prince at Amazon and, and Nets, maybe, and uh, you'll find a few books, I hope. So uh, just, again, it's just such a pleasure talking all three of you guys being on this show uh, from time to time. Th- thank you so much. Thanks for another great season. Pleasure's all ours, Greg. And my two words for, for the last word is going to be retire. David Wright's about to retire. And I, I don't want, basically I don't want the same thing to happen where all of a sudden we're, we're going way down the line and we're hearing about, oh, not until he makes the Hall of Fame, not until this, not until that. David Wright's not going to make the Hall of Fame, which is unfortunate. He could have made the Hall of Fame. But we don't need to be waiting for anything. I would go ahead and say retire it as part of the ceremonies this week. But, you know, there there are moments where you can't always hate on the proper business model of maybe milking it a little bit. And, you know, as much as we were like, oh, the Wilpons only want money, it's actually a a good way of going about doing your – conducting your business, if you will. So I can understand not – combining the two ceremonies with his retire his actual retirement and just throwing number five up there on the wall. But I hope that it doesn't take more than a year really. I would say just set it up for next year. Once it's we we've put the stamp on this career. Put don't have it Greg, you, you talked about it earlier and, and we talked about it a few times. 
if these people are not going, if those numbers are not going to be given out, if they're not going to be worn, number 17, number 8, just what is this whole have Why are you half-assing the whole thing? Go ahead and retire it. Don't try to be the complete anti-Yankees with it. And with David Wright, obviously nobody's going to wear number 5 again. They're going to put it up there. Just go ahead and do it. Just get to it sooner than later, and I, I can I can not fault you for not doing it this time around in one foul swoop, but let's not have this wait because David Wright, like you said, you can go ahead and call him the greatest position player to play for the New York Mets, uh, other than Mike Piazza, you would say, but he did it from start to finish. Unfortunately, he couldn't build more off of what Ed Cranepole had said in terms of the versatility that he he, uh, he gave over the course of 20 years, and, and David Wright took a lot quicker to break all of his records, um, but he still we still got him from start to finish, like Greg said earlier in the podcast, and that is something that is absolutely beautiful. And, and I, so retire his number sooner than later, but coming up this weekend as Mets fans, Let's soak up this last time. I will be there Tuesday. I'm guessing they're going to throw him up there at some point, depending on what the, the, uh, is dictating in the game. But I hope that I get to stand up with everybody else as David Wright approaches the plate as a pinch hitter and starts to approach the plate for the last time in his major league career. I hope that his daughters, his young children, who are, I believe, of two years of age now or so, but at the point, that they can remember this stuff now, and it's something that he's mentioned when it comes to why he wants to get out there one more time. And I hope that they stoke it up. They're not going to completely understand it right now, but they will one day what it meant to watch their dad on the ball field. And it's going to be a very visceral communal experience this, this entire week when it comes to this Mets fan base and David Wright and, and this franchise. So, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's bittersweet, but bring on the sweet. So, guys, thank you so much. As always, it's such an honor and a pleasure to talk baseball with all of you. Uh, Mike, Rich, thanks for being my my uh, podcast uh, compadres here. Thank you. Anytime, Sam. As always, the only way to end it is let's go Mets. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. Good night.